Welcome to On the Other Side, where we talk crypto, culture, and society, and how crypto might shape society and change how real humans live their actual lives. Every week, we have on cool people from the crypto world to talk about what they're building and what the implications of that might be for real human beings. Before we hop into the show, I want to give a quick thank you to the sponsors that make this episode possible. On this show, we talk all about the human side of Web3 and the philosophy of Web3, but when you're ready to get your hands dirty, Rabbit Hole is the place to go. Rabbit Hole curates all of the wildness of Web3 into one simple place where users can go to be directed towards positive sum protocols and build their skill set as they do it. In this episode, we talk about DAOs, and Rabbit Hole has an intro to DAOs skill that guides you through all of the basic tools you need to know in order to be a DAO contributor. You can check it out at rabbithole.gg. Thank you, Rabbit Hole, for sponsoring On the Other Side. All right, let's hop into the show. I am here with Denison Bertram. Denison, what's the official title you want? Um, I think like co-founder of Tally is probably enough. I do so many things. It would be like those weird sort of like Spanish monarchy introductions. <laughs> Denison Bertram, co-founder of Tally, CEO of Tally, summoner of the murderverse. Inceptor of random smart contracts that lose your money. That's actually a good intro. Welcome to the show. (laughs) You know, just go on and on. That would be my intro. I absolutely love that. I might just need to truly include that as your intro, but I think that's my intro. I think I think we've done the intro. That is that's the intro. Well, I'm excited to chat on all of those things and the things that you didn't mention Mm. in your past, prior to crypto. There's a lot to unpack here. Before we dive into it, maybe you can give a little bit of background on you and how you fell down the crypto rabbit hole, what you were doing before you fell down the crypto rabbit hole. Give us the story. So I like to say that I was around in the cohort of individuals who helped dig the rabbit hole. (laughs) Right. In the very beginning, you know, there was Satoshi and Gavin and like a couple other people, Luke Jr. and all these sort of like early Bitcoin folks. And I read the Bitcoin white paper in I think it was like 2010 or 2011. I was like, yeah, I get it. This makes sense. I've been watching the, you know, 2008. Um, That was just like a clusterfuck to the extreme, right? Like a lot of people today, um, you know, especially Web3 are like pretty young. So 2008 doesn't really seem, um, it's not something, it's like, it's like what we feel about today when people are like, oh no, the economy is going to be like the seventies. And, you know, you know, I wasn't alive in the seventies. So I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, like people are going to have bad clothing. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, in 2008, it was actually pretty clear what was what was going to happen. And it was like an entire generation of people were going to like lose, you know. And what I meant, mean by that is, you know, in 2001, uh, you know, I was also an adult in 2001, which is crazy. In September 11th, you know, it was clear that like a generation of people were just going to like lose, Right. Like wherever you were in your life, like that was just over and whatever you sort of hoped would happen was not going to work out the way you thought. And 2008 was the same thing. It was just like all these people sort of like were walking out of college into the workforce and there was nothing there. And it's just like, oh, you are actually never going to overcome um, the setback that 2008 has given you. And people today probably are going to like, no, you're extreme. And I, I remember talking to someone a few years ago when I went back to school to like become actually a legit programmer to start on my journey of like building my recent companies. And there was this one younger guy and he's just like, Oh, you know, we were talking about like 2008 and 2001 and he was like blowing me off and he was like, I don't believe it. And I was like, you know, what's crazy is, you know, today we talk a lot about, you know, millennials or Gen Z living at home with their parents, like people live at home with their parents. It's like kind of cool. And like, you know, your mom cooks and like, it's free rent. Like, why wouldn't you do that? And like, it's a pretty normal thing, right? Like, if you live with I'm, 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 this is a question for you, does it seem crazy to live with your parents? No, I feel like that's actually very normal. I mean, I don't live with my parents. But if I like, you know, I'm talking to someone and 
they mention it. Like, it doesn't seem strange to me. That's all also probably like a very U.S.-centric way to think about some of this stuff because I know regionally a lot of that stuff changes, you know? In 2000, it was crazy to live with your parents. And it was crazy to live with your parents because you were expected to be making enough money to have your own place. And, you know, when I turned 18, you know, my dad, and I'm paraphrasing here. So, dad, if you hear this, I love you. Um, (laughs) He said something like, son, you know, you're 18 now. So if you break your arm and you're in the hospital, give me a call. Otherwise, go get a job. (laughs) And you just didn't live at home, right? And today, tons of people live at home. And it's not because they love, you know, the people today love their parents more than people loved their parents in the end of the 90s, right? Um, The difference is today, being able to make enough money to like live on your own is just not realistic for just a shit ton of people. And that has become a new norm, right? And at the same time, we, you know, the, the same time in the 90s, you know, in the early 2000s, there were rich people but no one was anywhere rich as rich as like rich people today, right? Like rich people today are like actually phenomenally rich. Like we, you know, before we started recording, I was talking about how like people are all depressed that they're poor. And I was mentioning how, if you have a billion dollars, you, you still have less than half a percent of what Elon Musk has, which is insane. Right. Which is really crazy. So when I, when I am bringing this full circle, like when I, read the Bitcoin white paper, it made total sense to me. You know, in 2008, um, the rich really just got richer. There's this massive transfer of wealth from like the middle class to like um, the like really upper, you know, 0.01% of of the world. And that was like really shocking. It was really shocking at the time to see. And it was shocking to see how um, economies worked and how assets just were like, you know, it, it became this weird thing where like, Assets just, just after, after 2008, assets just sort of like went up. Like things just, you just bought something and it just like got more valuable, right? And so I, I really bought into the early Bitcoin um, ethos about like, you know, ultrasound money. I really bought into kind of a different future, uh, a future which actually today seems kind of like quaint and out of touch with like Web3. You know, one of the things that really got me into Bitcoin in the early days was how um, I felt like Bitcoin was kind of like the money of the future for machines. Like we needed to build an economy that was like native to computers. You know, w- one of the things I used to say when I would like sort of like talk to people a bit about Bitcoin is that money is the only human concept that isn't natively transferable over the Internet. Right. Like I can send you an email and say, Chase, I love you. And you'll probably feel loved. But if I send you an email that says, Chase, here's a dollar, you know, you don't have fuck all, right? You don't have a dollar. Um, So Bitcoin really felt exciting to me for for those kind of reasons. It was like I could finally send you send you a dollar, right? And just in a trustless, decentralized way. So that's that's how I really got started. Um, I think actually crypto has changed a lot since then. Uh, I don't know if I so believe in the future that I sort of like got into Bitcoin with originally. Um, you know, it, it hasn't really worked out that way. Bitcoin in the early days was a very different community. It became very caustic, very um, uh, unpleasant over over the years. A lot of people came in who um, added a lot of voice to Bitcoin, but not necessarily a lot of value. I'm sure there are some like Twitterers who are going to like tweet at me, but like the truth be told is, is that Bitcoin is very, very powerful, very complicated software. Um, and very few people can who really, really understand how it works. Um, and a lot of the Bitcoin community became folks who bought into the philosophy, but weren't necessarily builders and couldn't necessarily contribute. And it sort of like suffered this weird echo chamber thing where it just got more, uh, partisan, more um, bitter. You know, we had a number of like big forks, Bitcoin Satoshi's vision, Bitcoin something else or something else, um, where people just really just just took the, the, the political nature of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin has always been revolution as software, 
right? Which is, is so powerful and, and, and such a thing. And it just, you know, took on the face of, of so many different groups of people who, you know, frequently the loudest were not the nicest or the most pleasant people, right? And then Bitcoin, of course, came to pride themselves on that sort of like um, inflexibility. And in the early days, I was really interested in a number of projects that were going to bring more capable smart contracts onto Bitcoin, things like um, colored coins and uh, master coin. Um, and there was another one that now is sort of like escaping my my mind, uh, but a counterparty, counterparty. Uh, but, you know, the Bitcoin community just wasn't, you know, really receptive to this idea that we could like improve it. And so when Ethereum came around, it, it did take me a while to um, get on board, uh, primarily because in the early days, I was kind of a Bitcoin maxi. Uh, Ethereum seemed like a big stretch. You know, I, there's this talk that I give about magic internet society, which is all about how we build the future by building incrementally on these like insane primitives that seem like totally nonsense. I talk about how like, you know, first we had to create magic internet money. And then once we had magic internet money, we could create magic internet banks. And, you know, if you created a magic internet bank first, that would just be absolute nonsense, right? Like, you know, what would you go to, go to, you know, A16Z and be like, okay, so I want to create this bank for all the monopoly money out there, right? And everyone will give us their monopoly money. It wouldn't make any sense. But, you know, once you come to accept magic internet money as this like thing, uh, that's real. Suddenly you can build um, crazier things on top of it. So you get magic internet banks. And then once you have magic internet banks, you need magic internet organizations to run them. And now that there's a whole bunch of these magic internet organizations, you can link them up and you have like magic internet financial systems, you know, and then I sort of make the case that we're moving towards this like magic internet society where um, everything is just kind of absurdist, but we've worked on it for so long that it's, it's, it's like very real, right? So, so, you know, I, I got into um, Ethereum and sort of like went along on that as, as a journey uh, once I really understood it. And the, the biggest thing that drove me to Ethereum as opposed to, to Bitcoin um, was the fact that, you know, Vitalik did a really great job at making the culture of Ethereum from day one very inclusive, right? You know, the early Ethereum days, and, and this is something I hope that comes back in the bear market. In the early Ethereum days, you know, you saw people trying to outdo one another in like pajamas, uh, people <laughs> showing up in, you know, unicorn costumes. There was, there was a big sense of no matter how weird you are, you are not the weirdest person in the world, in the, in the room, and therefore Ethereum was for you, right? And, that, and that's actually Ethereum's superpower, right? Like a lot of these other networks, these L1s, you know, they, they kind of speak to what you know vitalik i think is called the sort of like stake crowd the red stake crowd where they're just like talking about DeFi or swaps or money and and, and they they expect that to be enough right like they're going to build the future just on appealing to just the gamblers of the space who just want to make money and ethereum is has been of course extremely successful in in powering gambling and the you know the crazy DeFi shit that's gone on the past couple of years but its power has been in saying that whoever you are, you're not the weirdest person in the room and you are, you are welcome here. Now, I think that's changed a bit in the past um, two years as sort of like the DeFi narrative just became so loud. You know, it just, it just became kind of like everything that we heard about Ethereum was just like DeFi, DeFi, DeFi. And I do think we lost, um, I think we did lo lose a bit of that that culture that I think is so important because as big as Ethereum is today, it is not as big as it needs to be to win and, and to like, you know, accomplish its like ultimate goal, right? Like there's still billions of people we need to get, get involved. So it still needs to broadcast this message that, you know, you're not the weirdest person in the room, um, which I still believe in. And, and hopefully in the bear market, um, that sort of attitude will come back. But, you know, in the last few conferences, you know, there are, I mean, I haven't seen any of the cool pajamas and, you know, the, there have been far fewer silly rap ensembles on stage <laughs> with uh, people who were otherwise assumed to be very serious. Um, so, yeah, that is a very long intro, but that is that is uh, the the early days me to me now. But, yeah, there wasn't all I think in summary, there wasn't always a rabbit hole. 
um, it had to be dug by people. And in the early days, there's a lot of people who did a lot of work to set the groundwork for um, each sort of like successive wave of crypto. And there have been many waves of crypto, right? People, people like to say, um, we're still early and, and that's true, but you know, I've been in crypto for over a decade. So, you know, we're not that early, right? Like we're early ish, right? But like in the grand scheme of things, you know, a lot of us are looking up from our keyboards and realizing that like, oh, uh, maybe actually this is what I'm going to be doing with my life. Yeah. And I just want to highlight, like people say they've been in crypto for a decade, but you've literally been building in crypto for one decade, like exactly. since 2012, an exchange, which is like, real deal actually being in the space, which I, I love and really appreciate your perspective. And actually that was like a very helpful, that was a very helpful backstory because there were a couple of things that you touched on that I think are really interesting. One of them is like this notion of what Ethereum was even a couple of years ago. Like I remember when I got in the space in, I went to a conference um, like a few months after I got into the space in 2019 and it was a radical exchange conference. And the vibe there was so different. Vitalik was speaking. It was all about, you know, like this new version of um, like almost like techno optimism in a way. And Mm. the vibe felt so different from how it feels Mm. now. I can't even imagine what it was, you know, 10 years ago. Um, But like I didn't even own ETH and I was going and super excited about meeting Vitalik um, and it, it felt like no one was ever talking about making money. Like that was yeah. never the vibe for those, that time period. Yeah. Um, which just feels so different from where we're at now. And I wonder, do you yeah. think that's going to die out as we get further into the next you know year or so? Um, you know, I wish it would, but I don't think it will. You know, I think the biggest lesson that a lot of people will probably take away from the last bear market is the finance things that you built in the bear market turn out to be the biggest winners in the in the next bull run right um so i think a lot of people are are going to have a you know a lot of people now know that crypto is here to stay right like each bull run has been like a process of like convincing more and more people that actually know this is here to stay you know uh, i mean i remember when bitcoin crashed from a dollar and people were like oh my god it's over i think there was even like some <laughs> article i don't know if it was like TechCrunch. i forget like what was around them i don't know if TechCrunch was around them but there's some article about like oh my god it crashed from a dollar down to like five cents or something crazy like that and they're like ah it's over the experiment's done you know um and since then, of course, like people have learned that no, no, this is just like the waves of like successive, um, you know, boom and bust cycles. But every time we we build from a little bit further up than we were before, and I I I wish that we would stop talking so much about the money. Yeah, um, but I don't know if that's realistic, and I think that's not realistic for a few reasons. One is uh, Ethereum got too popular, right? Like Ethereum got too popular for CryptoKitties the same way it got too popular for all the NFTs. Um, and Ethereum by default ended up being expensive and these projects by default ended up being expensive. And there's a lot of things that we used to build that just are not practical to build on Ethereum anymore, right? Um, you know, nobody wants to play a, a on-chain game that costs $20 for every move, right? Um it doesn't make sense. And that by nature has sort of led us to this thinking of like, okay, Ethereum's now going to, instead of, you know, there's a lot of different visions for like ETH 2.0 we're going to be in the past. Um, you know, it used to be like, you know, you'd come away from some ETH 2.0 thing and you were like, oh, the future is just like higher throughput and all these cool things. There'll just be more of them. Uh, and now it's more of like, no, ETH is going to be this like global settlement layer for like, you know, roll ups and, uh, you know, Primarily, you know, transactions are going to be expensive because they're going to be like anchoring um, all this other sort of like data and people are going to pay for this because it's all this money and it's just like money, 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 right? So, you know, I don't know, when's the last time you heard people refer to Ethereum as the world computer, right? Like in the early days, that's like what we talked about all the time. Oh, it's the world computer. Oh, we're using the world computer. I haven't heard anyone say the world computer for the past like year or two, right? People are like, oh, DeFi, 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 DeFi. And then, of course, once people finally believed 
you know, that but buying JPEGs was a thing. Then it was like NFTs, 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 NFTs. But most of these projects aren't bringing real value to, to the world, right? Like maybe you're collateralizing your NFTs. Great. Maybe you're lending on your NFTs. Great. Maybe you're yield farming your NFTs. Great. Maybe you're doing all the same things with tokens. Great. But all of it's just kind of some form of like, get in early, get in big, get out rich, you know, mm. um, which does indeed drive a lot of innovation, right? Like legit drives a lot of innovation because people are like, shit, we need better tools so that we can better build better ways to get rich. And like people are like, oh, shit, we need better um, education so we can show more people how to build things so we can like get more people rich. Oh, shit. Right. Like, so you, you go over and over and over this and like, and this is not to like poo poo all the work that people are doing. Like people are doing a lot of really incredible work in Ethereum and in, in Web3 in general, right? Like the enthusiasm has spread beyond, you know, Vitalik and, and a lot of people are doing incredible things everywhere. But the political nature of Web3 kind of has faded back into the background of a bit, right? Like when's the last time we talked about unbanking the banked or banking the unbanked or whatever, right? Like I haven't heard that term in quite a long time, right? Um, and the political nature of it today is is more or less like, oh, how do we fight the SEC and Gensler to like, you know, fight regulation, right? You know, the, the argument is just like, oh, we don't want to be regulated because uh, there's all these ways to make money and maybe they'll somehow like, you know, limit us from making money. And, you know, maybe maybe the bear, bear market is going to just bring regulation because we see so many people who who just, you know, effectively scammers, right? Scam artists who, who, who you know, really just stole from ordinary people. Um, yeah, I, I hope this bear cycle brings back people who are just excited about programming and building something cool. But I know that there's an entire chorus now of people who will do a whole tweet threads being like, Denison, you're so out of touch. We're talking about value and value accrual. And like, we benefit these people by making ways that they can like get stabler currencies, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like all that stuff, like great, fine, but it it's not as fun as it used to be. It doesn't feel as limitless as it used to be. Um, I still think that you know one of the reasons why I'm I'm in DAOs is because I think there's a lot of opportunity in like human organization. DAOs mm -hmm. feel like one of the things that Ethereum are really used to speak to me about. Like let's reorganize society with the world computer. Um, I still feel like that's a big possibility with DAOs. I do feel really worried that like it's just the next gold mine, right? Like, oh, DAOs, DAOs, DAOs. We're all going to get rich off DAOs, right? And, you know, I'll be frank. I hope I get rich, right? Well, that'd be great. Um, but, you know, truth be told, I, I hope we don't do the same thing that we did with DeFi where it's just like, you know, you, I mean, you remember DeFi summer, right? Like yields, earn 50 million percent APY on your money. And it's just like, what are we even talking about now, right? And and that that got normal to the point where people are like, oh, yeah, well, I'll just put my life savings into Anchor and earn 20% per year on it. And, and, you know, like Anchor will be doing something in the background where they can afford to pay you 20%, you know? And then you see all these other protocols building on top of like Luna or Terra or wherever. And, you know, just promising regular people the absolute, impossibility of you know super secure high yield returns forever and knowing full well that that wasn't possible right so yeah i i may sound bearish because we are in a bear market uh but i hope that a lot of people just lose interest once they feel like they can't make a quick buck right like if you can't make a protocol and sort of like keep it around for six months and then walk away a hundred millionaire uh, then maybe those people won't start. But I think the reality is, is that like people now know it's all possible and there's more builders in the space than ever, more builders than space than ever before, which is great. I used to be a developer advocate at Open Zeppelin. So I love that, you know, like this is absolutely awesome. You know, building on Ethereum today is a pleasure, right? Compared to what building on it, you know, five years ago was. Um, but yeah, I hope the, I hope, we find our way back to doing cool things. And maybe those cool things are the roll-up future, right? Maybe the roll-up spring 
um, that sort of like excitement back to to the world computer where you can do things that are fun and you don't have to really focus on just making money. Mm. Yeah, part of me wonders in this like magic internet society that you were talking about, which I think is like so such an interesting framing of all of this. Part of me wonders if a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with now is sort of a result of like the the different stages that you were talking about where it's like everything's about money, everything's about banks. What if we're on to an evolution of everything is about organizations and maybe by like hitting that layer of abstraction, we we move away from this like – I mean it's hard to say that obviously because crypto is like financial inherently. But I wonder if there's a world in which as we move on these layers, we start to move away from like this sheer money element and we're able to like bring in other elements that – at least have some motivation beyond, you know, monetary stuff. Mm. Yeah, I think we, I think you're right. I think this is part of the natural process. I think this is what the sort of like annealing of the magic internet finance meme looks like, right? Like we built it, it was very loose, it was very fragile and all this like fire now is just like this annealing process that makes it permanent. People are, aren't coming away from DeFi thinking that it's fake, right? There's a lot of mm. people lost a lot of money. But a lot of people are coming away from being like, oh, this is new. This is a thing. And a lot of people understand that, you know, new things break and that we're early. And, you know, like it's it's not unreasonable. You know, you see these like pieces in, in the media about how like, for example, Axie Infinity Maybe promises the gamers and it failed to fulfill them, right? Crashed and burned. Um, and those make kind of like nice sound bites, like, oh, Axie Infinity, there were scammers ripping everybody off. And then you read it and, you know, they got hacked to the tune of like, you know, $700 million or something like that, right? And you think, well, well, actually, maybe the idea worked, right? Maybe the problem here was is that somebody robbed them at gunpoint, not that the idea doesn't work, right? So is play to earn games dead? I don't think that's the takeaway from people who build play to earn games. I think the takeaway from people who build play to earn games is like, hmm, how do we maybe like decentralize that that treasury so it's not this giant honeypot for people to steal, right? Like that's probably what people's takeaway is. Clearly Axie Infinity works, right? Like clearly the concept works. Um, they just, you know, they got screwed because uh, the the, you know, their opponents – you know, the malicious folks out in the world, probably North Korea, um, just have more resources with them to than them to like think about stealing it, right? I think it's the same thing with like DeFi. Yeah, Luna collapse. Under collateralized stable coins are a bad idea. Um, I don't think that's going to stop people from trying it, right? Like I think people are gonna look at um this thing and think, hmm, well, I have an idea how to do it better. And I think that that's going to continue to to sort of be the case. Right. And and the interesting part about the sort of like the the progression to magic internet society here is all of that means that DeFi never goes away. And regulation, which is almost certainly inbound, will solidify magic internet finance as a real thing that you can really build on, that it's as solid under your feet as anything else in the 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 world, right? Even though it's a ludicrous idea built on a ludicrous idea that started from a ludicrous idea, right? <laughs> so I, I think the next step from there, in, in my opinion, really is turning around and looking looking at DAOs, right? Like you know, at Tally, our mission, you know, like what we really believe in is, is that DAOs are going to replace um, corporate structures, are going to replace corporations. Um, and, you know, maybe that looks initially, you know, already this is happening, right? Like you can go register a Wyoming DAO, right? Like DAOs are starting to exist in parallel with these other, you know, legal personhoods that the state bestows upon organizations. And I think what's going to happen, and certainly the sort of future that we're driving here, is we're going to build tools that make DAOs more and more viable as the new corporate entity. And as big as like magic internet money is and magic internet finances, um, I think magic internet society is so much bigger, right? Like I, I personally think of all these organizations that I see all around me, you know, and the, the organizations that we see in our entire life, right? You've got... Uh, 
your after school group that raises money for a track meet, you know, state finals. They do like a spaghetti dinner and they pool the money together and they buy a bus to take the you know, all the kiddos to like the state finals, right? That could be a DAO, right? You have the the class president who runs the class treasury, which is normally some sort of weird book held by, you know, the principal. Um, that could be a DAO. Condo associations, homeowners associations, you know, uh, neighborhood block clubs, NGOs, hospitals, companies, LLCs, everything could be a, a internet native corporation. And that is kind of a wild idea because, you know, right now the state bestows upon these like legal fictions, this idea of uh, corporate personhood. And what we're saying is like, well, actually, we're just going to take all this magic stuff that we've made and we're going to let the, the world computer, disp- you know, um, create this idea of a corporate structure just through software. And that's wild, right? And, and that's what I'm working on. Um, and that's kind of like where I think we, we go after the sort of like the, the magic internet finance um, just solidifies in everyone's mind as just being like a real thing. And maybe even in some ways the opportunity window for new participants kind of closes a bit. Yeah, I do wonder, I've been thinking a lot about like corporations are one way to think about these organizations. And I've been trying to push my thinking on DAOs a little bit as well to be like magic internet like stores of value or money feel like something that's just like so innate to the way that we do things. Um, And of course there will be evolutions of that. We've kind of already seen that with DeFi. Um, but I'm sure like that will continue to evolve in the way that we like see those things existing. And it makes me wonder like what the next evolution for DAOs is beyond like the corporate skeuomorphic sort of mm. um, type energy. And mm-hmm. I'm curious how you think about that. I think that there's going to be a long pause on sexy innovation. And I think that's actually a good thing. I don't think, you know, there's a lot of folks in the space who are doing a lot of great work to sort of like advance the idea of DAOs and the structure of DAOs and stuff like that. And they are very necessary and they are very important. But I think the next few years is less about um, experimentation and all the wild forms and more about making this idea real in the first place in people's minds, right? And I think that it's going to happen in parallel, right? Like people are going to be doing experiments with quadratic voting. People are going to be doing experiments with like different ways to organize and all that jazz. Like that'll happen in parallel. But I think the hard work in the next couple of years is actually just hard work of making magic internet organizations a real thing for the dude that i'm looking out at right now who's just standing outside on the street corner you know like that is you know DeFi made magic internet money realer right DeFi itself DeFi itself like you know DeFi is kind of interesting right because there weren't as many participants in it as people think um, I think, in my opinion, I think it's a, a smaller number of, of really wealthy individuals who are sort of like using it as a, a as a machine, but they were sort of like jump starting the idea that we can build a financial system, and that's super critical, right? Because DAOs aren't going to be very useful without financial rails. You know, when when my co-founder and I, uh, Raf uh, Solari were first interested in DAOs, this is sort of like in the era of Aragon in 2017, it wasn't really clear to us what DAOs were good for, right? You could have an organization on Ethereum, but it didn't really make much sense as to why, right? Um, today, it's very different. The, the, the DeFi has solidified the idea that your organization can be people making decisions and interacting with this wider economic system, right? Like today you can diversify your treasury, right? Like, you know, in 2017, you know, if you're holding some ICO token, well, you know, chow, chow, you know, we didn't really <laughs> hear from you very, very much longer. And, and today still, you know, most people have not diversified their treasuries, which speaks to how early the DAO experience and the DAO tooling um, is today. But 
as we go forward, I think that a lot of the building and I think what a lot of the sort of like the quote unquote winners in the sort of like Dow tooling space, because, you know, when when Raph and I started, there were only like three or four Dow companies, right? Uh, Maybe five. And today there are maybe like, I don't know, like two, three hundred, right? Um, I think the hard work is going to be less sexy and just more practical, right? Like they're, they're all the people who, who may have heard the good word of DAOs in Web3 have heard the good word of DAOs in Web3, right? Um, to grow the same way sort of like a DeFi need to grow and sort of like NFTs needed to grow. Um, we need to reach a wider audience. We need to solve more people's problems. And DAOs are going to just have to do the hard work of solving real people's problems and real organizations' problems. And I think that, you know, alongside the the tooling that is provided by wonderful companies such as our own Tally, um, <laughs> I think that that's what the next few years is going to look like. I think it's just going to be a lot of like hard, sort of like boring um, work of just like spreading the word. Mm. How much do you think that's going to be like, I've been thinking a lot about how DAOs are kind of a function of, because they're a vehicle for organizing, I feel like often they're actually a function of the things that you can do with them. Like Mm. in the sense that to your point about in 2017, it was kind of like, why would you do something with a DAO? (laughs) Because there wasn't really that much to do. And until we like bridge the IRL sort of gap with DAOs, it does feel like a lot of like the popularity of DAOs will basically depend on just the number of like organizations of groups of people basically that exist in Web3 doing anything, um, which makes me a little worried, I guess, for like, you know, if things are slowing down a bit, what does that actually mean? Maybe it means more dedicated builders, but actually like growing the number of people who are interested in DAOs feels. I don't know. It feels like there's a tension there. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that is, you know, today a lot of DAOs sort of service some sort of like financial protocol, right? Or some sort of protocol. And there aren't enough of them to justify a future of DAOs, right? Uh, Now, I think there will be many more protocols in the future. I think, you know, today is the fewest number of protocols we'll ever see for the rest of our life. But um, for DAOs to grow, we need more than that, especially if we go through a long period of like people aren't really believing in making money anymore, right? Like maybe that's what's happening in the greater economy. Maybe people are just trying to like preserve capital, but, you know, maybe there isn't actually any opportunity to make any profit in anything for the next three years, right? Which is entirely possible, um, which is crazy. But, you know, maybe that's just what it is. We're just in this sort of period of stagnation. We're all sort of like either working or picking off savings. Um, if, if that's the case, yeah, DAOs, DAOs don't really have that much to offer there, right? Um, so what I think is going to be important is this growth into the real world, the same way sort of like NFTs brought, brought people into Web3 without them knowing about Web3. I think DAOs are going to have to bring people into Web3 without them knowing about Web3. And the reason why is that it's going to be doing something of value for them, right? It's going to be making their lives simpler in, in one way or another. And to do that is, again, I think just the, the hard work. And, you know, I, I think that it's actually pretty possible. There's just so many problems out there that uh, need, you know, that, that DAOs, in my opinion, actually make better or certainly more efficient, certainly more capital efficient. Um, but, when, you know, we're going to go through a long period of just making it more things accessible for DAOs to be able to just, like, use them for more things. And I think that's coming. You know, I think a big piece of that is like legislation. So we already know that like states are working to make DAOs something that makes more sense from a like legal point of view. Um, We need more on-ramps and off-ramps for DAOs, uh, more tools for them. Um, But, you know, over time, they will solve more real people problems. And I think you see this already. You see organizations like Friends with Benefits or Pool Suite or, you know, Serif, which are these real life social organizations that use DAOs to sort of like intermediate 
um, their the decision making amongst themselves and like bring a sense of community and collaboration. And I think that that is the sort of like toe in the water for what the future is going to look like. You know, people are going to identify themselves by their virtual organizations that they're members of. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as you kind of imagine it's probably been a long time since you were in a Facebook group. Um, but, you know, the Facebook groups were serving a real need amongst people. So I think in many ways we'll see DAOs look a lot more like Web2 um, in both good and bad ways, I suspect. Uh, but the problems are they're, – they're out there. There's plenty of problems out there that, that DAOs just bring incredible capital efficiency to. Um, they bring a little bit of decision-making inefficiency in, in many, many places. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think it's just going to be like a, a, a lot of kind of like boring work, but, um, I'm actually really looking forward to it. I think it's, it's the, the, how do we go out there and like change people's lives and how do we like make things better, uh, opportunity that is kind of like bear markets, right? Like the, the DeFi protocols that were built during bear markets, you know, they are a different culture than the DeFi protocols built in bull markets, right? You know, you look at folks like Aave and Maker, they are they are very, very culturally different organizations than the DeFi protocols that are built in the the, the frothy frenzy of, of a bull run, right? So I'm looking forward to the people who are going to be building awesome things for, by, in, with, uh, DAOs during the bull market, during the bear market, because I think um, we'll come at it from like a better place, like a more sustainable place, right? Like again, you know, you think of all the the DeFi protocols that were were built in bear markets and are still here and doing fine, um, and in the midst of like a horrible, horrible crypto winter uh, impending upon us, and then you think of all the, you know, the DeFi protocols that were built. Um, after and have, you know, these sort of like negative cultures or, you know, founders that just shit talk people on Twitter. Um, and, you know, you look at where they are and it's a very different place, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like a lot of this, as, as you talk about sort of like rolling your sleeves up and being able to experiment and really like do the hard work um, in the bear market, it reminds me of, I really like the way that you were talking about like magic internet societies becoming almost more and more like absurd as we build these things. And um, like before we wrap up, something that it reminded me of is that that Steve Jobs quote about how like the entire world was built by people who are no smarter than you. Um, and I think there's something really interesting about interesting about that in the context of this whole thing where it's like we've seen the frenzy – cool, that's, you know, dying down. And now it's really about like actually building this like magic internet society that you talk about. And it'll probably seem um, absolutely insane looking back at it. But then I feel like we almost get used to it. Like in the same way that I grew up with the internet and that's very normal to me, but to people who did not grow up with the internet, there's probably a moment where you reflect and you're like, that's kind of absolutely ridiculous Yeah, (laughs) that we built this much in my lifetime. Yeah. You know, there's a, something that I, you know, I, I start to feel more and more like a boomer, but um, there's something that <laughs> I like to talk about that's really funny that seems so incredulous today. But, you know, in the early 90s uh, or not, sorry, in the early 2000s, also in the early 90s, but, you know, up until the early 2000s before sort of like cell phones really became ubiquitous, you could meet someone on the street, like them, talk to them for a few minutes hit it off and say, hey, do you want to go on a date in two weeks' time at 5.30 p.m. at this location? And they would say yes. And two weeks later, you would go there at 5 p.m., that location, and they would be there. They would just, they would just be there. There was no, um, you know, it's today it's just like, yo, you know, it'll be like, 10 p.m. at night and you'll be like, hey, do you want to get brunch first thing in the morning? And then at like 7 a.m. they'll text you and be like, are we still on for brunch? (laughs) You know? Yes. So the internet today and like so many of these things are like totally crazy. Like even smartphones, you know, they feel like they've been with us forever. And 
you don't even have to be like even a gen gen xer or whatever to remember pre-smartphone days like smartphones like weren't ubiquitous until like the teens right like the early teens like what did the iphone came out in like what 2009 i think it was like what now i have to google this really quick when did the iphone come out june 29th 2007 right that was the first iphone these that's wild like, that's why they did not hit any sort of scale until like you know in the teens so before that you had a phone right like if you had a cell phone right but but you didn't have email right you weren't like connected on twitter you just like walked outside and you were actually fucking outside you know you just like walked down the street and you were just like walking down the street and it was like you chase chapman by yourself alone no airpods no airpods <laughs> right i mean you might have a cassette player a cd player or my personal fan favorite uh mini disc player but like that was it nobody was gonna call you right calls were expensive calls were really expensive you know, so it's like some of the, all these things seem so wild to us. And I think that like, you know, it sort of speaks to how fast society can change, right? Where now you just live on your phone. Everyone has phones. I have like a stack of old phones, right? Like you upgrade every like eight months or nine months. You're convinced that you need a new piece of glass to slide your thumbs on. I legit think I'm getting carpal tunnel in my like little knuckly knuckle thing on my thumb just from fucking swiping Twitter, you know? Um, but there was a time when I would just like go to the park and you just sit there and you could meet someone and they'd be like, hi, and you just talk to them. And that would just be like it. And now we have, you know, 3000% yield on invisible fake money. You know? <laughs> it's a big, how times have changed. <laughs> how times have changed. Right. I mean, when I was a kid, you would get like, when you were like 13, you would get a passbook account at like the bank. And they would give you like a little book that looked like some sort of dance card, right? Um, and you would put your money in and they would tell you what the interest rate was. And you would come back when you went to college and you'd have more money in it because it like grew because you were like saving and there was like interest, right? The idea of you making any money at a bank is crazy today. It's crazy. You know? We'll see, that might change. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Really, let's be honest. If 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 they got your money without paying you anything for that long, you know what are they going to do now? Like hike it up to like half a percent? Oh my god! On every million dollars you earn, uh, Coke and fries. Woo! <laughs> you know, such bullshit. You're um, still better off with own forks. Maybe not now. At one well, point, you know. Probably be better off deploying a new home fork, right? That's um, isn't that the out, sad truth? Yeah, you know, you got thirty thousand dollars in a rug. You know, it's hard that work, but it's a living. Truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, well, so yeah. before we wrap up, this has been such an interesting conversation. Like, truly, um, thank you. I have absolutely loved this this perspective. But I have a segment at the end of the show, which is mm. what is your favorite thing in your wallet? So it could be an NFT, it could be an ERC-20, it could be anything. But what is your favorite thing in your wallet? My favorite thing in my wallet is a picture of my wife. <gasps> what a good – wait, are you talking about your physical wallet? Yeah, you didn't You didn't specify if I That's had to talk about That's very true. Digital Would or... you ever mint it as an NFT? No, and have that shit show up on OpenSea? Fuck no. Absolutely not. It already is an NFT. There's only one of them. I'm never going to sell That's it. True. I don't need liquidity on it. I'm not going to go <laughs> fractionalize it. Hey, babe, I fractionalized your picture. Yeah, there's a new token for it. It's trading on Uniswap. You should get in. You think she would She would be okay with that? I think no, actually. You know, That's and the reason why she fair. wouldn't be cool with it is I think the same way that smartphones made people not cool with you taking their picture. Right. I was a photographer before and like street photography was a thing. You know, you were outside and you could take people's pictures, right? You are, you have no rights to your image when you're outside. 
Um, smartphones really change that. I mean, the law is different. The law still protects us taking a picture of anything we want outside. But like socially, smartphones have really changed. So smartphones and social media have changed how people think about that. So I think, you know, privacy and stuff like that and Web3 will change how people think about that stuff too. Where it's just like in the beginning, you'd be like, yeah, we're going to like collateralize. And people are like, I don't know what that is, but go ahead, have fun. Um, and now people are like, don't put me on Web3. There's like DGENs out there. Yeah. And you could like financially benefit, I suppose, from, you know, your yeah, wife's looks like or whatever, which is not the vibe. Yeah. yeah. Not the vibe, right? Yeah, well, I think I we'll see that. a backlash to NFTs yeah. in there. Yeah. Evan from Disco has done a good job too with really like like being very um, much an advocate for privacy. So hopefully yeah. she helps protect your wife. So <laughs> not I'll that she keep, needs protecting. I'll just I'll just keep that NFT in my wallet for now. That's probably a good it's a good plan. Well, Dennison, this was so wonderful to chat. Where can people learn more about you and Tally and all the well, other things you're doing? Um, to learn more about me, just listen to this podcast again. There's there's, there's a new nugget every time you listen to it. Um, like it, thumbs up it, five stars it. You'll learn more every time. Um, please go to tally, T-A-L-L-Y dot X-Y-Z to learn how you too can start, build, and grow decentralized organizations that scale from two to two million plus people. Um, the future is yours to make. Come build it on tally. Uh, if you want to learn more about me, just give up. It's not worth it. I'm not that interesting. Uh, but I am around. You can find me on Twitter. I am very political. Um, but I'm also very pragmatist. So if I say something that offends you, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it on purpose unless I was in a bad mood. And then I just apologize. Um, but yeah, that's me. Beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Chase. My pleasure. If you like what you heard, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast. I always forget to do this for podcast day like, but it's actually super useful. Also, if anything resonated with you or if you want to continue the conversation, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Chaser Chapman. I absolutely love talking about these things. Thanks again for listening.